Luke chapter 17, our text this morning will begin in verse 11. And as it is not unusual for Luke in writing what we call the Gospel of Luke, he departs here from a strict chronology of events. In other words, what takes place here would not does not appear to be a chronology tied into what took place just prior to it. In fact, some commentators will tie in our text here beginning in verse 11 of chapter 17 as actually falling chronologically with the events that transpired in Luke's Gospel chapter 9 verses 51 and following. And there... For those of you who have been tracking with us, you may remember that was the occasion where Jesus was in Samaria and he was rejected. He was not received in Samaria because it says there he had his eyes set upon Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem. So our text here finds him traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And again, what's likely transpired back all the way in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 11 tells us geographically where he was. So what then is the connection from 17, 1 through 10, where we we considered last week and there ended with the parable of the unprofitable or unworthy slaves. What's the thematic connection that we find so often in Luke's gospel Or do we just believe that he just kind of haphazardly drops things together here as he thinks of them? Or is there some of the theme, something that connects this thing together here? And and I realize that we, we have to give here to some speculation. We don't know for certain because Luke doesn't tell us. But I think that we can consider the contents of the text that's before us, the content of the previous text, and make, I think, some some very wise decisions about what joins this together. And I think that it seems to be in light of where he finished this this last section, where he gave the the parable of the unprofitable servants, the unworthy slaves, those who have gone and they've labored out in the field and they come in and the master doesn't tell them to sit down. He says, well, serve my meal, clean yourself up. When I'm done, then you can eat. And Jesus ends that part. He says, when you have done all those things that you have commanded, you need to say, we are unworthy slaves. In other words, we have not done anything. Anything for God, for the kingdom of God, for which we deserve something back. In other words, God does not become our debtor. We always realize that what I'm doing for God, what I'm doing as a believer is what I ought to be doing, so I don't need to live with some expectation that if I do something for God, God, in turn, should do something for me. He's already done plenty. But in a lot of that parable that we considered last last week, I think the event that Luke records here, now we're moving from a parable to an actual historical event of these lepers who come and they encounter Christ. We realize how far removed that such a mentality that Christ calls us to in the parable of the unrighteous servant, how far removed that is from us. 
That's just not where we are. It's not the way we think. So there's always the danger of a presumptuous attitude towards God's graces and God's mercies to us. So begin reading with me in our text this morning, Luke chapter 17, verse 11, down through verse 19. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. This is a text that, to be honest with you, in your reading, it's one that it almost needs no exposition. It's pretty clear cut, isn't it? Pretty straightforward in its message. And as I thought about this text, I thought, well, I know this story. Probably most of the people who I'm going to be preaching to know this story. And there was almost, I could almost hear this collective sigh, this collective thought come. Well, it's time for a good little sermonette on thanksgiving. Of giving thanks. So being the stubborn individual that I am. As I began to read and pour over and meditate and pray on this text. I'm determined to find something more. <laughs> to search for anything more than just a little, simple, nice message of gratitude to God. And I come to you this morning to, to tell you that that search has been in vain. And perhaps that's a good thing and... And with the desire as a pastor and as a preacher to you, my first priority in preaching is to be true to the text. And so it seems that what we would glean on an initial first read of this, this text, when you come back and read it again for the 50th time, they're pretty close. Then I began to think about various calls to gratitude and the giving of thanks that is given to us throughout the Scriptures. You know, I'm not going to direct you here, but we all know 
the book of Psalms is just chock full, is it not? Of calls to give thanks to God. Expressions of thanksgiving unto God. Just start reading through the Psalms. Mark it. Write it down. The times the word thanks is even there. Giving thanks. But then in the New Testament, you know, we're exhorted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, that in everything we are to give thanks. By Paul to the church at Philippi, likewise to us, in prayer and in supplication with thanksgiving. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, just very simple. Be thankful. And then what's revealed to us of those who are given over to their degrading passions and sins in Romans chapter 1, where it all begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it begins with this. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So very quickly, you can go to the Scriptures and come away with the, with the idea that there is a premium throughout the Scriptures on this idea of thanksgiving, expressing our thanks unto God. And conversely, you get the idea that it just doesn't come natural to us. That it is something that, that God in His providence has dictated us through the Word of God. If you don't get it any other way, get it this way. It's a command of God to give thanks to Him. If it takes a command to get you to do it, here it is. And many times, the reality is, it takes just that, doesn't it? It takes a command to get us to think about it. It takes a command to get us to realize the importance of this. And it takes a command to get us to do it. Because if we don't do it, we're sinning. So there is our choice that we are a thankful people or we are a sinning people. So how dominant ingratitude is in the human heart. How dominant ingratitude is even within the hearts of God's own people. God has blessed me with a wonderful wife. Y'all know that. I want to tell you that. One of the the strengths of, of Beth is she is a she's a grateful person. But not only does she feel grateful, I feel grateful. But Beth expresses gratitude. Beth sends thank you notes for everything. She may start sending thank you notes for thank you notes if you send her one. But that's Beth. And I appreciate that because I'm the kind of person, you know, unprofitable servant. I've done the audit done. I appreciate it. But there was something recently she said, she said, uh, you need to write a thank you note. I told him thanks. You need to write a thank you note. Two weeks later, did you write a thank you note? No, I didn't. I think you need to write a thank you note. Finally, I broke down (laughs) 
and wrote a thank you note. But I'm appreciative of my wife who seeks to instill that in me and hopefully I'm not completely too far gone, but in our children as well. You know, after birthdays and after holidays, Christmas days and those type of things, when gifts are given, all that kind of stuff. What are they doing? You ask them. They're writing thank you notes, thank you cards. You know, it just doesn't, just doesn't bubble out of us, does it? And the reason for, I suspect, for much of our ingratitude, much of our ingratitude, particularly in the things toward God, that we get to a point of, of spiritual dullness. You know, we just don't marvel. We don't wonder about things that we ought to marvel about. And we ought to wonder on those things. And they ought to create in us an attitude of thanksgiving. So that's where I want to direct us today as we consider this text. Because if you're a child of God today, you've got a lot to be thankful for. You've got a lot that's already been done for you and you've got a lot promised to be done for you yet. You've a lot for which you should give thanks, for which we should all give thanks. To assist us in that, what we need to do is to work and to try to regain something of the capacity to, to marvel at things. Let things that have become old to us be those things that recapture our hearts and there be something, a sense of marveling and truly wondering and amazement at these things. That's my task for, for all of us today. So, what's the first thing that we need to consider that we might regain this capacity to marvel and in turn have a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. First of all, it's the wonder of His presence with us. The wonder of His presence with us. Certainly that's appropriate, isn't it? That we we speak about thanksgiving to God for the wonder of His presence with us when we're here right smack between thanksgiving and Christmas. Because that's what thanksgiving is about, isn't it? That you give thanks. And then what Christmas is about is the fact of, of that God has come to be here with us. So Luke reminds us here as he gives this account, and as does each of the gospel writers, he reminds and shows us here that Jesus is a man who actually has a place in time and in space here with us. We're not talking about fantasy. We're not talking about fiction. We're not even talking about historical fiction. It has a lot of embellishments to make it interesting and exciting. Here we are, a man who is determined to convey to us the facts of what transpired in one man's life. That man, Jesus Christ. And he was real. There's a point in human history. There is a geographical place in which Jesus lived and Jesus walked here among men. 
And our text even reminds us here between the very real countries of Samaria and Galilee, these two regions. There he is. On his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, it's kind of dull, isn't it? It is unless we choose to marvel. Unless we choose to wonder again at what, what, what Christ has done and what God has done, that Christ has come to be here among us, that you can go to a present day Israel or the area of the Middle East and you can walk today where Jesus walked, if that's your favorite song. You can walk where He walked. You can go where He went. So he enters this village. It's an actual historical geographic place. So in our text, he's Jesus here walking among men. But they're just like us. You read that text. Most of you, I didn't. You didn't get much wonder out of that, did you? And here's Jesus walking with these people, walking between Samaria and Galilee, walking into this village, and there's these ten lepers who see Jesus coming, and where is there any expression here, any description here, of there being any amazement and wonder among these people at what's going on, at who this is? Where is it? It's not there. You have ten lepers. Those who are ostracized, those who are cast out of society, those who are prevented from entering any of the religious activities as well. They're outcast out of the city. And they're required by law, if they, they're approaching someone, before they come, they're to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. So that anybody knows they're coming, you don't want to get close to them because you don't want to be unclean. In a worst case scenario, you don't want to get leprosy. So here you have these ten lepers, and this is what they recognize. They recognize that Jesus, if anyone is able to help them, Jesus can. Likely they've heard of the things that Jesus has done in various places. You know, His reputation is preceding Him. And here, this one they've heard about, this Jesus, He is coming into their village. Or at least the village that they're on the outskirts of. He's coming their way. They have nothing here that indicates wonder. They do give some recognition that he's more than an ordinary man. They recognize by saying at least Jesus' master, a respectful greeting placed upon him. Their cry for mercy is, Lord, have mercy, or actually translate, mercy us. And the word there is one for pity. Have pity on us. But it's not just a feeling. It is an action. It's to have an active compassion toward us. Do something. Out of pity for us, do something for us. Mercy us, incidentally. It's a different word. Where you have the publican and the Pharisee who go into the temple to pray. And the publican, he cries out to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a different word. That word means God propitiate. Intervene 
redemptively on my behalf because the real problem I have is my sin. This word that's translated mercy us or mercy me just means have pity. Have compassion. Do something out of pity because of the miserable state in which we find ourselves. We need someone to help us. There's nothing to indicate their wonder that Jesus is God walking among men. So we believe and we understand that Jesus lived among men. Well, good. But do we marvel and do we wonder and do we glorify our God and our Savior for that truth? That Jesus Christ did come and walk among us is the incarnation of Christ. No longer a truth to stir our hearts to worship. I mean, is it any wonder that we find ourselves and our, with our children wrestling, trying to always bring their hearts back in this time of year to something of the true meaning of the coming of Christ? And if you want to say the true meaning of Christmas, we're always wrestling against the world. And why is it so hard? Because there's no wonder about the things of God. This is what God did. Enough said. Give me a gift. And there's wonder in Christmas gifts and Christmas wrappings and all the other stuff. The reality of His presence with us should amaze us. The reality of God walking on the earth. Listen, this is not the place for God. God doesn't walk upon the earth. God is spirit. God is transcendent. God is the creator of all things far beyond this earth. All the universe. The magnitude of the universe in which we live. God is greater than all this. And God is in all those places. This earth, walking on this earth, is not the place for God. And here He is. Isn't He? Assuming... Human nature. This isn't the nature of God. God is spirit. And He takes upon Himself human flesh. The reality of becoming a man. Fully God. Fully man. And then, if God were to come... Would we expect to see him walking among the people, walking in the places where he walks? Listen, this is not the glory that is due our God. He shouldn't be walking. He needs to have someone carry him. Why should his feet touch the earth? And here he is, walking between. Samaria and Galilee, entering an insignificant village, and those crying out to him are ten lepers. So, where is the glory that is due 
our God? Where is the, the marvel? Where is the wondering for such a condescension for us? The great step down that God takes to reach us, to be among us. Where is, in this holiday season, the marveling, the astonishment for such a truth that when we say the words, Emmanuel, God with us, that there's still something in that, the reality of that truth will grip us anew and afresh. God came and lived here among us. And then the reality that we profess even today, that God is here today in this place with and in His people. The wonder of His presence with us. If your heart's as slow as mine, I'm not expecting any of you to be jumping up and going out of this marveling day, but I do ask to give consideration to these things in these days. Now, I'm not trying to stir you up emotionally. I can't do that. But I am saying to you that there are truths that are revealed to us in the Scriptures that we have become so familiar with that they've lost their wonder to us. And it just doesn't amaze us anymore that God came to live among us. And hence, we don't live with an attitude of thanksgiving, a spirit of gratitude toward God. What else? Let's consider, let's regain this capacity tomorrow by thinking, meditating upon the work of His power for us. The work of His power for us. These lepers, when they see Jesus, they do not hesitate to call for Jesus' help, do they? Because they see in Jesus their last, their only chance for help. If there's any hope that they're going to be delivered from this leprosy, then the lepers were just simply regarded as the as the walking dead. You're as good as dead if you're a leper. It's just a matter of time when your heart stops beating, but you're as good as dead. So Jesus responds to their cry, doesn't he? What does he do? It says there. In verse 14, they've cried out in verse 13, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have pity. Got passion on us. And he saw them. He said, you go and you show yourselves to the priest. What's he doing here? Well, the priest was the one who had, back according to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the priest was the one who had the authority to pronounce someone who has been in contact with leprosy or has shown signs of leprosy, he was the only one that had the capacity to declare that person to be clean. And when a person was declared clean, it just simply means that he is given all the benefits both in the religious and the social circles. In other words, he's free to participate in in the religious activity and the worship of God, but he's also free to intermingle and interact just in the society at large. So he's... Simply put, he's readmitted to society. And it was the priest's role to determine whether or not an individual was in fact free from any leprosy. 
So when Jesus, he says to them, you go and you show yourselves to the priest, still in their lepers, he's just saying, go. He didn't touch them. He didn't pronounce them clean. He just said, you go and you show yourself to the priest who will, assumption here, who will pronounce you to be clean. And so, they go. It's a consistent pattern of Jesus, isn't it? Consistent pattern of Jesus' mercy towards those who are needy. We've seen that as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. We've seen that many times that there have been those people who have cried out to Jesus. Those people who have been have great need. We've had the blind made to see. We've had the lame able to walk. We've had those who had even died brought back to life. We've seen the power of Christ, the mercy of Christ in these deeds of mercy over and over again. But Luke reminds us here that this attitude and this spirit of Jesus, of mercy towards those who are needy, is consistent with his, with his overarching purpose. That there is a, a larger purpose, there's a larger event taking place here than just merely wandering around from city to city and healing the people with whom you may come in contact with just arbitrarily. Now Luke reminds us here that Jesus' visit here was not a casual, friendly, how you doing visit. Just thought I'd come down and see you guys, see how you're doing. Get an idea of what it's like to live like you like, like you do. That's not what he was doing, is it? That when Jesus came, he came with a purpose. In verse 11, we're reminded that it says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem. While he was on the way to Jerusalem. It's the theme that was introduced to us back in chapter 9, verse 51. If you want to turn back there with me very quickly. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Then in 9.53, let me read on in 52 and 53. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. 13.22, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So what do we see here? This is Luke just revealing to us, Jesus has a set agenda here. He is going to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he says here, we just read that. Cannot be the prophet perished outside Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem to perish. As a prophet, as the prophet, as the Messiah, as God himself. And then, where we haven't gotten to yet, in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And following, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. 
And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But it all starts, that first part he says in verse 31, we are going to Jerusalem. Going to Jerusalem. It's a deliberate journeying toward Jerusalem to complete His redemptive work for His people. To die for the sins of His people. So He's going with His mind, with His heart, with His eyes, with one destination, going to Jerusalem. And it's not going to be a friendly visit. It's going to lead to His death. With purpose. That's why He came. What a picture here of the work of God's power for us. Why is He doing this? us. Now I know the greater theological answer to that question is He's doing it for His own glory. I know that. But He's chosen to glorify Himself through doing this for us. For people. There's plenty here, folks, for marveling, isn't there? There's plenty here for us to give thanks to God for Christ coming, Christ working for us. He heals lepers. He heals the blind people. He heals the lame. He raises the dead. But more important than any of that, He delivers all of us from our greatest infirmity for those who cast themselves upon Him. He delivers us from our sin. It's His redemptive work that's foremost in His coming. Delivers from the penalty of sin. That we do not have that which we are due toward us from God Himself. The very wrath of God due upon us for our sins against Him. He removes it. That penalty is gone. The power of sin. That sin is no longer the master and the controller of our hearts as it once was. In spite of what we may think and experience at times. That we are dead to sin. We are alive to Christ And that we look for long for that one day when we should be free from what's been described as the possibility of sin. That when we depart from this body, when we go into eternity, or if Christ comes and we are raised in these bodies to meet Christ, the possibility of sin is gone. It's gone. That is the work of His power for us. Do you long to be free from sin? If you're a child of God, you do. And granted, in varying degrees, even from day to day, week to week, moment by moment. But there is... At the core of a heart of a believer, longing to be free from sin. I just don't want sin anymore. Robert Murray McShane's prayer. Lord, save me from this promiscuous habit of always sinning and repenting. I'm tired of sinning and repenting. You have the certainty 
That is the power of Christ at work for you that one day you shall be free from even the possibility of sin. That is something to marvel. When I think of this heart, (laughs) I think of the inclinations of, of my own heart. And I say, you mean to tell me that something is going to take place in me that's going to even deliver me from even the desire and the possibility of sin that's almost unfathomable. It's going to be gone. Doesn't that give you something to look forward to? That is the work of His power for us. It's coming. Listen. The power of God for us. What manner of power is needed to transform sinners who are alienated from God to those who are redeemed and forgiven and empowered lovers and practicers of righteousness? What kind of a power does it take to do that? I think if you're a child of God, you've come to play someone online, you realize, I didn't come from me. It didn't come from New Year's resolutions. It didn't come from any kind of resolution, any kind of resolve. It didn't come from turn over a new leaf. It didn't come from tragedy coming in my life and me deciding I'm going to live a different life. It didn't, none of that does it. It takes the power of God to transform a person like that. We're talking about a change in our nature would be required. I'd have to be somebody that I've not been before for that to be true of me. Where I'm no longer a sinner alienated from God. That's what the Scripture calls having a new heart. That's what the Scripture describes as regeneration. The new birth. The marvel of God being for us when He has every reason to be against us. The power of God for us. Actively working to deliver us from sin. And finally, the worth of His person above us. The worth of His person above us. In our text here, verse 15, one of them, he saw that he had been healed and he turned back. So evidently, evidently, once Jesus, he commissioned him, he said, you go and you show yourself to the priest who they can readmit you to the religious activities, but also to the society at large. You go and you show yourself to the priest. And they started, and as they were going, they were cleansed. Evidently, they didn't get very far. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan 
who, religiously speaking, had less light than any of the Jews, in any assuming that the other nine were Jewish lepers, who had less light than any of these, he sees something. And he sees a little bit more than the fact that my body has been healed here. Now, he obviously sees that, but he sees beyond that. He gives thought to more than a healing, and he thinks about this one who has done this for me, and he cannot help but think, this one deserves more from me than merely to walk off. So he turns to Jesus, the scripture says, he glorifies God, he falls on his face, expressing thanks to Jesus. Was that an appropriate response? Yes, so appropriate, so much so that the question that Jesus asked is, where are the other guys? Why aren't they here? Rhetorical question, verse 17 were there not ten cleansed? Yes. But the nine, where are they? They're on their way to the priest. No doubt, all excited about being cleansed. All excited about no longer being lepers and being outcast from religion and from society. But in their excitement... They miss the real issue here. Verse 18, Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? They missed glorifying God. One leper regards the worth of Jesus and he glorifies God in his thanksgiving. This is the way he glorifies God, by expressing his thanks to Jesus for what he's done. And words, no doubt, of of us praising God and glorifying God. See, there is a rightness. There is an appropriateness. There is a fitness of a grateful heart to God and to Christ because he is worthy of such. It's fitting, it's right for creatures to express thanksgiving unto their Creator. That's right. We ought to do that. Listen to the song of heaven as recorded to us in Revelation 7. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. And honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That's the song of eternity, folks. That's the song you're going to be singing in heaven. And it's going to include thanksgiving to God. Because it's right that a creature acknowledges his gratitude and his dependence upon and his indebtedness to his Creator. And this leper, he just considers the worth of this person who has just healed him. And he goes back and expresses his gratitude to him. Listen, thanksgiving is going to be a dominant part of our worship of God in heaven, evidently, isn't it? Based there on Revelation 7. 
So how are you preparing for eternity? Folks, this is this is warm-up time. This is the time that we we get ready, we prepare for what's going to be taking place in eternity and it and if nothing else is clear to us, we're going to see God in a, in a way we've never seen Him here. And we're going to be expressing things to Him there we've never been expressed here because we've never considered. And there it is, thanksgiving unto God is going to be part of it. Get ready for it. How? Express gratitude, thanksgiving to God. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about mere empty words. I'm not talking about pretended thanksgiving. I'm talking about where there is a true sense of gratitude for the things that God has done for us. And even if He does nothing else, the fact that I have eternity with Him is enough. And we read the... uh, The Apostles' Creed, the last phrase of this, things that we say we believe in, says we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Is that enough? You say, well, to be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot in my life to be thankful for. You are a blind fool. And I say that to this heart. Because I spend many, many days in my life never expressing any gratitude and thanksgiving to God. As a blind fool. If He doesn't do anything else for me, the fact that I know that I have my sins forgiven, I have the anticipation of the resurrection of the body, I have the, the assurance that I will be with God, delighting in Him forever, that's enough. And folks, it better be enough, because if you think you deserve something more, if you think that you deserve something more, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And every time I start thinking that, I just have to remind myself, remind myself of the persecuted church. Because the folks, they don't have it and they're never going to get it. As far as the comforts and the conveniences in this life. It's not going to get good for them. To know that it's enough that these things that are revealed clearly that God gives to all of His people. It's yours. that we praise, that we worship, that we give thanks unto our God to cultivate a spirit of gratitude toward Him. Learning to express thanks for the blessings, for the benefits, those things that we can look at and say, these are things that I truly am grateful for. They're the good things that God brings into my life. And I thank God for those things, but also to thank God for His mercies and for His grace and for His presence and for His promises that are revealed to us in the times of trials. 
and difficult circumstances as well. Any heathen can rejoice when things go well. The uniqueness, a uniqueness of the church is that we can rejoice when our world is falling apart around us because there are things that cannot and will not be taken from us. And whatever the trials may be, as they come, they, are, they, they come through the filter of a loving father toward his children. So we have to, we have to consider whatever the trials, whatever the circumstances that I'm having to go through and endure, we have to, to, to consider them through the filter of the sovereignty of God, who is my loving father. And it may not be that I can look at some of the trials and circumstances in my life and I say, God, I thank you for this. But I can, in the midst of it, say, God, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you are bringing to my life the very things that you know that I need that will sanctify me, that will bring me more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. They're not the things that I would choose, but you know better than I do. I trust you and I thank you that you've not abandoned me. So we can find something to be thankful for in the midst of everything, can't we? So there's a little sermon out on gratitude. And there's much need in this heart before you. I am not often a grateful nor a thankful man. God help us. Father, we thank you that we've not had to consider anything new this morning. But Lord, we do need to be reminded more and more of the wonder of those things that are that are old. Oh, Father, forgive us that we have just quite simply many times failed to give pause and consideration to these things. We just get too busy doing things that don't matter. So, Lord, would you not help us, Lord, to grasp something of the wonder of what you've done for us? And redeeming us and sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we might be those who express thanksgiving unto God regularly. And as we pray, our prayers be laced with thanksgiving. And our conversations, one with another, be laced with words of gratitude unto God, acknowledging the goodness of God in our beh- on our behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.